You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, there we go. How are we doing? Everybody good? I mean, 70 points. That's hard to do, y'all. I'm saying. Let's go. Uh, all right. Good morning. I'm John. I am our pastor of family discipleship. If you will, grab a Bible and go to Romans 12. If you don't have a Bible, it should be one at the end of the row. Ask real nice. Someone will pass that down to you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. As you are flipping to Romans chapter 12, I wanted to give a little spotlight for our college ministry. Any uh, college students in the house? Excellent. So, uh, (coughs) excuse me. Uh, Since we planted as a church, we've always had a heart for college students. We love to see when Jesus' love gets a hold of a college student's heart and mind and shifts and redirects the entire trajectory of their lives. Uh, Too often, college is a season when churches get disconnected from college students and college students get disconnected from faith, and we hate all of that. We believe God wants to change the world through college students set on fire for the glory of Jesus and the kingdom uh, that he is bringing on earth. And so like everything, our college ministry exists to make disciples, uh, to see maturing believers who are more and more living as Jesus-centered family on mission. Uh, And just wanted to give you a couple quick updates. Uh, At the beginning of the semester, we do first five college gatherings on Thursday nights. Uh, So we're two weeks in on that. We had 130 come the first week and 150 come uh, the second week, which you guys know, uh, we don't celebrate numbers for the sake of numbers or ego or anything like that. That's 130 and 150 college students who get to hear the gospel and hopefully get connected to church family. That's what we care about. Uh, And then uh, as well, we've been hosting some weekly college lunches hovering right around 100 college students at that from week to week. So we're really encouraged by that. I hope you are as well. Got two ways you can be praying for our college ministry. The first is a lot of brand new life groups are forming right now. A lot of college students are getting connected into life groups that could become friendships that shape their entire college career and potentially their lives well beyond that. So let's be praying uh, that God would just be kind of ordaining those relationships, how those form and those life group connections. The second thing is College Fall Retreat is coming up October 4th through the 6th. So first five leads right up to that. Uh, College Fall Retreat is like a crash course in kingdom community. And it'll be the first time a lot of these students see confession and just kind of get to know us. We really think once a college student comes on a trip, once anyone comes on a trip with us, they get a pretty clear picture of this is the group of people for me or no thanks, I'm out. So either way, uh, it works. Either way, it works. And let's just be praying that the right people are on that trip, including a good number who don't know Jesus or don't know if they want to follow Jesus throughout their college career. And uh, I would love to just kind of lead us in praying. But if you would be praying for our college ministry in these weeks, I would really appreciate that. Father God, thank you so much uh, for the way that you got a hold of my life so much in college. Uh, God, for the the fact that you love uh, every college student on the campus of the University of South Carolina and at Benedict and Allen and Columbia College, and um, God, you don't give up on college students. You don't quit pursuing them. 
You, know, you, you want to draw them to yourself and capture their imagination and their hearts and their minds in such a way that their, their whole trajectory of their life would just be uh, a brilliant kind of like comet for your kingdom. Um, and so we just pray for that, God. We're so thankful for the, the privilege of all the college ministry we get to do. And uh, just pray that you'd continue to work in it and bear fruit. Uh, we pray all of that in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, that ministry spotlight really fits pretty well with what we'll be talking about today. Uh, today we are looking at our member covenant practice of mission, and specifically we're going to be focusing on hospitality. So uh, let me start us out here in Romans 12. Uh, I'm going to be booking it pretty quickly through the first half, three quarters of the sermon, and then we'll kind of sit in it and slow down a little bit at the end. So y'all stick with me, okay? Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Paul writes and he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. So that's kind of his theme right here is that the church is supposed to be marked by this genuine brotherly love for each other. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks with community. He continues and he says, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And then here's kind of our focus, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Just so you don't think that's a one-time fluke, flip over a few chapters to Romans 15. Just a few pages to the right. In Romans 15, Paul is talking about how strong, mature believers who have been following Jesus for a while have an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to love on and serve those who are newer, younger, immature, or not even believers yet. And here's how he ends the passage in Romans 15, verse 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Maybe you think this is just Paul in Romans. So if you were to flip over a few books, you don't have to, it'll be on the screen. Peter in 1 Peter 4, 8 through 9 says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. How? Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And if you don't like Peter or Paul, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Have I convinced you from the scriptures that hospitality is commanded for the New Testament church? Excellent. Okay, great. The practice of hospitality has always been overtly commanded in Scripture. And there's actually this really beautiful Greek word that I love. It's the word philoxenos. Philoxenos, we'll throw that on the the screen. It means love of the stranger or love of the other. It's the exact opposite of our word xenophobia, where xena means the other or the stranger, and xenophobia is fear of the other, fear of the stranger. But philoxenos means love of the other, love of the stranger. And that that word is used in so many of these passages. Now, the why of mission is something that we've talked about a good bit throughout the years. Our why for why we live on mission is that Jesus has shown us philoxenos. When we were strangers to him, when we were altogether other, stuck in sin and darkness, he 
emptied himself, came to earth, lived a servant life to the point of death to welcome us in, to open up his kingdom with warm, grace-based hospitality to us. That is our why. Jesus is our motive. Nothing will ever change that. The reason we show Philoxeno's hospitality to others is because Jesus has done so for us. But today, we're going to focus a little more on the how of mission than the why. Hospitality has always been overtly commanded, but I want to help you see why it's absolutely essential here and now in our current spiritual environment. And that's going to take me about 10-15 minutes to set up the cultural act atmosphere that we're in. So we ready for that? We good? All right. Sociologist Philip Reef breaks down Western cultures into three primary categories. The first one is what he calls pre-Christian cultures. Pre-Christian cultures uh, think tribal, pre-modern people like Celtic Ireland before the gospel came to that place. They've never heard of Jesus. The culture is not built on biblical principles. Uh, so sometimes you would have things like child sacrifice or uh, really rigid caste systems or other brutal cultural norms. Spiritually speaking, gods and goddesses are hiding behind every bush. So if you were to go to one of these places as a missionary, what would your approach be? Well, you've got to kind of start from scratch, right? Because they don't have any base knowledge. They're not familiar. They've not heard of Jesus before. They're not familiar with the scriptures. So uh, we see an example of this in Acts 17. Paul goes into Athens, Greece, and they have this pantheon of different gods, including an altar to the unknown God. That was what was inscribed on this altar. So they believed gods were all over the place and they knew about most of them, but just in case they had missed one, they had an altar and they would give sacrifices to the unknown God so that that God wouldn't get mad at them as well. And Paul rolls up into that spiritual climate and he goes, let me talk to you about that statue to the unknown God. Because there's actually one unknown God. His name is Jesus and he's the only God that matters. And he teaches them from where they're coming from, but he just starts to unpack just from scratch. He's building up from scratch, okay? Now, in some places, if the gospel comes and starts to saturate, the culture goes from pre-Christian to category number two, which is what we call a Christianized culture. Christianized culture. I want to be really clear here. There is no such thing as a Christian culture, not here on this sinful, broken world. There will be a Christian culture someday when the kingdom comes in full, and we long for and await that day. But it ain't here. What we get here is a mixture of Christian culture, Christian moral framework and values, mixed with the surrounding culture and framework. But in a Christianized culture, the cultural norms lean towards the way of Jesus rather than away. The Christian faith and moral framework are highly valued, and there's more pressure on you to kind of lean towards Jesus than away from him. So if this is like middle America in the 50s. I don't know if you know or not, the 50s were the, the height of church attendance in America. And in the 50s and in many decades after that, uh, you got a social benefit from saying you were a Christian. When you said you were a Christian, people went, oh. You're a very upstanding, kind, moral person. I know about you. And that was thought of highly. So um, being a Christian in a Christianized culture is not difficult culturally. It brings some social perks. Here in the South, in Colombia, we live in what was once and still is in many ways a very Christianized 
culture, which means living on mission here has some unique challenges at times. Because when the gospel becomes normalized, it can become meaningless in a hurry. Many people here in Colombia and in the South are what we would call inoculated to the gospel. They've had just enough of it to not actually sense or feel their need for it. There's a lot of confusion about what the gospel really is and what being a Christian really looks like because everyone says they're a Christian. My bet is that most of you probably know someone in your life who would claim that they're a Christian, but there's no evidence of spiritual fruit. There's no evidence of growth or real love for Jesus. And the tricky thing here is that culturally, that still can be beneficial. Like, so for some people, they'd rather say they're a Christian and go to church regularly than have to deal with their annoying aunt's questions, all right? That's what you get in a Christianized culture. There's some pressure and benefit to just saying you're a Christian and just kind of acting like you are, whether you are or not. And you get a lot of confusion in a Christianized culture. Now, over time, not all, but many Christianized cultures shift to category number three, which is what we call a post-Christian culture. That's what Philip Reef calls it, a post-Christian culture. I want to be clear on this one. A post-Christian culture does not mean it has moved past Christianity. In fact, in a really ironic way, most of the values and the vision, things like human rights, dignity, equality for all, all of those things are rooted historically and philosophically in the Bible, in Christianity. These are foundations of how Jesus described the kingdom of God breaking in on planet Earth. But post-Christian cultures say, okay, Jesus, we want your kingdom but we don't want the king. Jesus, we like the, the, the love, the tolerance for your enemy. That We're cool with that part, but we don't want to really admit you have anything to do with it. So you get some of the values that Jesus brought with his kingdom, but with a rejection of the king who actually builds, empowers, and establishes the kingdom. As a result, post-Christian cultures tend to have a lot of reaction against Christianity, This is a little bit offensive, but not unhelpful. It's not unlike a rebellious teenager thinking, mom and dad are so dumb, I don't need them, I know what's best for my life. But yes, of course I still want free groceries and Wi-Fi and insurance and a place to stay. Uh, In in post-Christian cultures, people are generally open to all kinds of spiritual ideas, and I think you're seeing more and more of this in Colombia all the time, where the average person in Colombia is likely as open to quasi-Buddhist mindfulness mixed with goat yoga as they are to God. Oftentimes, people are more open to Islam or Judaism than to Jesus. Now, I would argue this is not based on a critical analysis of the content of those belief systems so much as the cultural feeling and pressure of those things are modern and cool and hip and acceptable, and I don't want anything to do with my grandparents' old uncool God and religion. You see that? You feel that pressure? And then sometimes in post-Christian cultures, there can be a a growing hostility towards Christianity or Christian moral frameworks and restraints, especially Jesus' sexual ethic, are actually seen as immoral as opposed to moral. They're seen as oppressive or even harmful to people. But really, with or without the hostility, in a post-Christian culture, Jesus just becomes one option amongst many. You want to believe in Jesus? That's fine. That's so good for you. 
If that works for you, that's great. That's not for me. So there's no objective, real truth to it. It's just do what works for you. Here's how Charles Taylor describes this in his just textbook tome of a work, A Secular Age. He says, belief in God is no longer axiomatic, but is just one option among many. And just in case you were wondering if he's smarter than you, he uses words like axiomatic. So I think that clears that up. So the question for us then is, where are we? What is our culture right now? I've hinted at a little bit of this, um, and obviously there's a great mixture in all of America due to lots of many different cultural backgrounds. Generally speaking, I would say here in Columbia, we are on the receding waves of a fairly confused, hyper-Christianized culture where everyone said they were a Christian, everybody put a little Jesus fish on their business card, and that just was the good old boy social network. But we're on the receding waves of that as more and more elements of post-Christian culture are moving in. So we aren't New York City or San Francisco, uh, but we're a little bit more like those places every day. Uh, in terms of the Christianized culture, we have significant leftovers where uh, we've got all the confusion to deal with. Lots of people think they're Christians but really aren't. And as well, many people are open to coming to church or talking about Jesus, especially the more traditional and Southern that they are. At the same time, the more modern or less traditional someone is, the more likely they are to have a lot of post-Christian cultural elements where uh, if you're, so here's how I just describe it. For many of you, if your neighbor or your coworker finds out you're a Christian, don't be surprised if they get weird. Like, don't be surprised if they go, oh, you are. Cool. That's weird. So a uh, good buddy of mine, Dustin, uh, was hanging out over at the Bike Collective, which is here in Columbia. It's right over by Eat More Teas and Captain Telegram off of Elmwood, if you know where that is. Uh, and he said, you know, just like really connected with the guys. He was going over there to check out what they have for bikes, and it's a really cool spot. They work on old bikes and make them available for free or very low cost, especially to people who can't afford bikes. So like for the homeless population in our city, that's beautiful. That's an incredible thing they're doing. And so Dustin went over there to check it out, and and he just said he really connected with the guys. Like they just had uh, good vibes is how people would say it in our culture these days. And, uh, and so eventually they said, oh, so like what do you do? And he said, oh, I work for a church. Still very nice, but a few of them were just kind of like, oh, weird. Just what? And one guy actually said this. He, uh, he said, so like what do you do for the church? And Dustin said, well, I work with our Serve the City partners and specifically with the homeless community in Columbia. And the guy said, oh, you work for the side of church that I like. And so hear that. I'm not mad at the guy. He's being honest. That's real. Um, but it, it's, it's symptomatic of the post-Christian elements of, of our cultural moment where people, they've kind of taken this morally superior, authoritative view of, I'm going to pick the parts of God that I like and reject the parts I don't. I'm going to pick the parts of Jesus and Christianity that I think are morally acceptable, but those other parts, no thanks. And the gospel comes with a house key, a book by Rosaria Butterfield. It's one of our recommended resources for this series. I really strongly recommend you pick it up. She is brilliantly insightful. She puts it this way. She says, we have become unwelcome guests in the post-Christian world. Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. 
Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply anymore. Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. And so then the question for us is in light of the overt command of Jesus for us to join him in living on mission, to be hospitable, what do we do? How do we go about living on mission faithfully in a culture that growingly more and more looks at Christianity and looks at Jesus with some skepticism or maybe even some overt hostility? Because see, the thing that I think is true for most of us in the room, and I know we're coming from all different places. If you're not a Christian in the room, we're so glad you're here with all the questions you bring. This is a welcome place for you to be honest and meet people who are going to say, yeah, I've had that question before. Uh, But for most of us in the room, what's happened is God has overwhelmed you with his unbelievable grace, his love for you, his philoxenos to you when you were a stranger. He's led you to repentance. He's brought you into his kingdom. And you're starting to just enjoy this abundant, rich life to the full. It's not perfect, but you're walking with Jesus, whether it's good or bad, and you love it. And then you also love your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. You love that guy on your softball team who doesn't know Jesus. You love your family members, and you want them to know Jesus, but you don't always know how to talk about it. Because you're like, well, I don't want to mess things up. And if I say the wrong thing, they might just be like, I'm not interested in friendship with you anymore. And so there can just be this real tension and awkwardness. So the question then is, what do we do? How do we live on mission faithfully? I'm going to give you two bad options and then one good option, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. Bad option number one, keep quiet, which is unfortunately an option we all pick too often. Amen? It's if... If society says it's unacceptable to push my beliefs on people, then I just won't talk about my beliefs. Ironically, that's a belief that has been pushed on you, but that's another sermon for another time. Uh, The temptation is to just kind of turn your house into a castle, wall up inside it, stay peaceful in public. We keep our head down and keep quiet, and nothing happens. Bad option. I don't recommend you picking that one. That's why I called it a bad option. Bad option number two, we don't keep quiet. We just kind of update Jesus. Ooh, Jesus isn't very socially palatable. Well, let's just Photoshop him a little, and we'll come up with Jesus 2.0, a Jesus for the modern age. And this new Jesus, man, modern Americans are going to love him because he thinks exactly like modern Americans think. Isn't that wonderful? Now, I'm skeptical of this idea for a couple reasons. Number one, Jesus was a first century Jewish man. So it would surprise me greatly for him to think exactly like modern Americans think. Secondly, it sounds almost like as modern Americans, we think we are the moral authority throughout human history as opposed to God being the moral authority. And Jesus being God, I would expect him to have some significant differences with how we think. So it shouldn't be surprising when he does. It should be expected and anticipated. This thing really boils down to whenever you and Jesus or you and God or you and the Bible disagree, you win. And that does make a Jesus who is very accessible, um, compelling to modern Americans. It's just not real Jesus. It's just not who Jesus is. So at some point, you're winning people to something that's fake. 
I don't recommend that. Those are both bad options. Neither keeping our head down nor editing Jesus are good options. The good news is Jesus has given us a third option, which is this ancient practice that avoids both of those fails, and it's called intentional hospitality. That's the good option that I am recommending you choose. This practice is literally marks the entirety of Jesus' life on earth and his entire ministry and mission. I'll give you a few examples real quick. In Mark 2, Jesus calls Levi, this tax collector, to be his fifth disciple. Now, Levi as a tax collector would have been despised culturally by his culture, the Jewish people, but he is a bit progressive in terms of the Roman culture around him. And either way, Jesus says, I want to welcome you into my kingdom and teach you how to be a disciple. I want you to look at what happens next. This is Luke 5, starting in verse 29. And Levi made him, that's Jesus, Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Levi gets welcomed into Jesus' kingdom, and what's the first thing he does? He throws a feast. He invites Jesus and all his friends over to his house. That's intentional hospitality. Keep going, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They don't like it. Jesus, you are hanging out with the wrong kind of people. We are not cool with that. Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you see the connection that Jesus just made? Jesus, why are you always eating with sinners? Because of God's mission. God wants to see sinners come to repentance. God wants to see the kingdom come. God wants to see people changed. Hospitality, eating meals, sharing meals in people's homes is part of how Jesus was going about the mission of God. This continues just a few chapters later in Luke 7. Jesus is eating dinner with Simon the Pharisee. Interesting, because Levi the tax collector and Simon the Pharisee were about as opposite as two people could have been in this culture. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'd love to eat a a meal in both of your homes. Just a little interesting thing there. Uh, While he's there, just because he likes to ruffle feathers, he welcomes in an uninvited prostitute who washes his feet and he forgives her sins. I just, I love to think about how uncomfortable Simon was in that moment. Like he's an upstanding, he's a deacon at the church essentially. And he's like, you you invited who into my house? And she's doing what to your feet? And I, in my living room, and I... I'm not hungry anymore. I've lost my appetite. I mean, like, it's just so awkward. And so Jesus uses the moment to confront Simon about his self-righteousness. Jesus confronts him because he is, in our culture, he would be Christianized, not actually godly. Another sermon, another day. Uh, And this is actually right after the Pharisees just finished critiquing Jesus in Luke 7, 34, by saying, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking was a critique about him. Like, oh, you think you're this fancy guy? Man, you're always eating and drinking with sinners. What's up with that? The only other time that phrase, the son of man has come, is used is at the end of Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus in Luke 19. It says this, verse 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So I love if you put those together, you get the son of man has come eating and drinking. Why? To seek and save the lost. You see that connection? Hospitality is how Jesus is going about, inviting himself into homes, inviting people into his life, sharing meals with people. So theologians have actually noticed that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is more often than not going to a meal, coming from a meal, or already at a meal. And I just really connect to that, because I 
really like meals. And the truth is, it's not just about the meal, it's about the intentional hospitality. You could do this over coffee, you could do this playing a sport, you can do whatever. It's about an open life. But I do think there's something interesting about the meals. Because I don't think this is by accident. Meals have a particularly Godward component. Good ones do. You know, see, meals are, you can, you can make it evil. I don't, we're not, it's off topic. It's off topic. Just don't burn the bacon. That's all I'm saying. It's reasonable. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Um, there can be something really uniquely Godward about meals because meals are absolutely vital to everyone. So they're really unifying. I don't care how rich you are, how poor you are, what color your skin is. We all got to eat and we all got to drink. And we all do that in, in the shape of meals at times. Um, there's also just something that the real meals are about the relationship had around the table, not just the food on the table. So my, my family, we, we have a lot of people over for dinner on the regular, and I'm training my kids all the time. Whenever a guest is over, you are going to ask them some questions at dinner to get to know them. And then at the end, they get to ask us all the questions because we want them to get to know us as well. And I want to help my kids understand it's not just about the food and getting through it as quick as possible. It's about the relationships that happen when we all slow down and thankfully receive God's provision and his gifts. I also think this is really practically helpful for our culture because it's a lot easier to hate someone on Facebook than it is when you're sharing a meal with them. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit embarrassing example for me. Uh, a number of years ago, I was going to eat a meal. I was going to get lunch with a guy in our church, and I, um, I was not very excited about it. Uh, based on what I, had, what I knew of him from Facebook, his approach to politics was significantly different and significantly louder than mine. And honestly, I was partly going to lunch to confront him about it because I thought he was, he was causing some harm and he was blind to it. And by the end of the meal, I found myself thinking, this guy is pretty great, actually. He's way more reasonable and informed than I ever would have thought based on what I saw on his Facebook feed. And I really enjoyed this. Can we do this again sometime? And it kind of caught me off guard, my lack of excitement going in compared to how much I enjoyed it coming out. It's a lot harder to hate someone when you sit and enjoy a meal with them than it is when you stay disengaged, disembodied, and electrically fight with them, electronically fight with them. And I think it's beautiful that Jesus ate meals with everybody. The richest, the poorest, the most respected, the most rejected, the most conservative, the most progressive. He didn't care. He would eat with anyone who would give him the time. He would build relationship around that meal. He would confront everyone with their sinfulness and their need for a savior and their need for God's grace in their life. I think it's a beautiful picture of what he calls us to do. So I want to end with just kind of three practical facets of what it looks like to walk in intentional hospitality in light of how Jesus did it. What does that look like for us here and now in this cultural moment that we live in, in this kind of ebbing tide of hyper-Christianized, confused culture with incoming post-Christian elements? How do we do this practically? Uh, facet number one, interactions that build credibility. Facet number one of intentional hospitality is interactions that build credibility. So in a culture moving towards post-Christianity, you oftentimes are going to be starting from a hole. 
many people's first response to your faith in Jesus is not, I am so intrigued. Tell me more. How might I follow this Jesus of Nazareth that you have followed? <laughs> it's not always how it goes. More often, it's going to be, uh, no thanks. I'm not interested. That's kind of weird. That's, it's 2019. <laughs> That's the date. Uh, to go a little more in-depth on that, sociologists use the term plausibility structure, plausibility structure, to mean how easy or hard it is for someone to imagine a certain change or outcome happening in their life. As our culture becomes more post-Christian, we have a lower and lower plausibility structure for people in our culture to imagine themselves ever being a Christian. For, so for us as Christians living faithfully on mission in our culture, one of the best things you can do is be a normal person who loves Jesus and builds friendships with people so that over time they go, you know, I really thought your beliefs were really weird and ridiculous at first, but over time I'm starting to think you're not what I thought Christians were. And if Christians are like you, maybe I could imagine myself following Jesus the way you do. Huh. You get that? So I'll give you an example. Uh, a good buddy of mine in town is Colin, who runs and works at Sandwich Depot right down the street. If you haven't been there, I would argue it's the best breakfast sandwich in town. The bacon, egg, and cheese is delightful. I'm not eating bread right now. It's another thing. I don't want to talk about it. Anyway, <laughs> go see Colin. Get a bacon, egg, and cheese. And so as Colin and I were building friendship, I mean, we just go in there and, you know, we just kind of click. It's just like, this is a guy I like. He seems to enjoy my company. We'd sit and talk sometimes while he was eating breakfast if he was bored um, and didn't have a lot going on. You know, wasn't super busy. And at one point early on, Colin was trying to, kind of trying to rib me a little bit. And he was like, hey, did you see that? And he referenced some megachurch pastor who, I don't know, was raising money for another private jet or something ridiculous like that, right? And he, he thought like, ha I'm better than you because you're on that team. And I was like, heck no, I hate that guy too. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think that's ridiculous according to Jesus. I think the Bible critiques that guy harder than you're ready to. And so all I did in that moment was I caught him off guard a little bit. And whereas he thought he was pointing out the differences between us, I actually got to say, no, that's actually something that makes us really similar. And I think anyone who takes the Bible and Jesus seriously would land where you land on that. Okay, what does that do? It makes him go, oh, well, maybe, maybe following Jesus could be a little more plausible than I thought. Huh. Just trying to build some credibility. Uh, quick note, if you are thinking to yourself, well, how am I going to do that? I don't have any friends who don't know Jesus. Okay. Uh, scripturally, Jesus puts the impetus on us to go build friendships with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with the guy on the softball team, to invite them into your house and have them over for dinner. And it's not a project, it's a person you're going to build a friendship with over time. And you don't know what's going to happen. It's not a, if I don't convert them in six months, I'm done with them. No, 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 no. No, go be a good friend in the culture. Hey, culturally speaking, we're not great at friendships. I would love to, we're just not, and the smartphones are not helping. I'm getting ahead. We're going into that in point two. But listen, I would love to see our church, I would love when people in Columbia thought about Midtown for them to just say, yeah, those are some of like the friendliest people. And I don't mean Southern hospitality, nice to your face, mean to your back. I mean like genuine long-term friendships. They're just there for me. Ah, they disagree with everything I believe, but they're always there for me when I'm hurting. Yes, that would be beautiful. Now we're talking about point number two. 
Point number one is interactions that build credibility. Point number two is friendships that build trust. I just mentioned this, I'm gonna hit it again. Uh, the smartphones are not helping us build better, long-lasting, richer friendships. A group of people sitting in a room together staring at three-inch glowing screens is not the depth of godliness and biblical friendship that we are called to. It should make us go, uh-oh, what are we doing? Hey, guys, let's all turn our phones off for a minute. That's, you should be having that reaction sometimes. And when I say you, I mean me too. Like when we're in that room and no one's talking and everyone's doing this, like some of us just need to start going, guys, what are we doing? Like life is better than this. And like just throw it against the wall and watch it shatter. <laughs> I'd catch some people's attention. That's not really what, okay. Pro tip, pro tip for those of us who are being trained digitally in a way that we're not great at making friendships. I mean, literally, like the studies show that uh, the, the younger you go in our culture, the less able to maintain eye contact people are. Hey, uh, pro tip for those of us who are not being culturally trained how to build friendships and we're living in a culture that more and more is skeptical or hostile towards Jesus and Christianity, uh, when you're building a friendship, one of the first and most important things you ought to do is ask a ton of questions. You just ought to be asking questions all the time. Hey, what do you think about that thing going on in the news? Oh, interesting, cool, yeah. And just take a genuine interest and get to know them. Yeah, what are your beliefs? Why? How'd you get there? Where do you come from? What are your experiences? Huh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I'll give you a practical example. Uh, my oldest son, Josh, a really good buddy of his from school is named Kyle. Uh, Kyle's family just moved to Columbia in the last few, like, really in the last year. And so Josh was building friendship with Kyle. We met his parents somewhere, invited them over for dinner. We're starting to get to know them. They didn't know anybody. Didn't know anybody in Columbia. So I think we were some of their first friends in Columbia. And it was just a lot of questions. I picked up somewhat quickly that mom and dad come from slightly different faith backgrounds. They're kind of open to a lot of different spiritual ideas and everything generally somehow gets up to God-ish. Uh, and so I was like, well, I'm just gonna ask a lot of questions. And pretty quickly, like over the first month or so, I found out mom is super into conspiracy theories specifically about Bigfoot and disappearances when people are hiking and camping in the Rocky Mountains. That was not a topic I would have considered myself an expert in. So I, uh, you know, I went home and I listened to some podcasts. <laughs> and I still wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I'm getting conversational with her because I value the friendship. Uh, Philoxenos demands the expectation that you would assume you're not going to have everything in common with the stranger you're getting to know. The assumption is there's going to be some pretty big differences. And if you're only willing to befriend people who are a lot like you, you're not going to actually be willing to obey Jesus on his missional commands. You're just going to have to open up a little bit and be willing to get to know some people and take a genuine interest, even if you think conspiracy theories are a little ridiculous. Take an interest. It's, it's interesting. It's entertaining. I'll go with that. How about that? We have a great friendship. It's building. It's taking time. Francis Schaeffer had this to say about it. He said, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. That's beautiful. That builds trust and credibility because people don't feel like a project if you don't treat them like one. 
and they feel like you actually care about them and want to get to know them. Number three, and this is where we'll land, we'll give you some practical training for what we'll do in life groups this week. Uh, The third facet of intentional hospitality is connecting Jesus in your story to their story. Connecting Jesus in your story to their story. So if you mishear me on point one and two, you could think, oh great, he's saying I don't ever have to say anything about Jesus ever. And that is not at all the case of what I'm saying. I am saying that what you say about Jesus should come in the context of a rich, genuine, growing friendship, because then it has more credibility and more trust. Romans 10 would tell us, how are they ever going to hear about Jesus if someone doesn't talk to them about him? I would argue that 99 out of 100 times that someone is going to be you the person who knows them and loves them as a good friend and also knows Jesus and loves Jesus, I would say there's a pretty good shot that you're the most likely candidate to tell them about Jesus. Someone who does not know them and someone who does not know Jesus is a much less likely candidate. Just work out the logic, it's there, okay? (laughs) And so here's what we're gonna do to end our time uh, and to just prep you for life group time this week. So especially for life group leaders, uh, y'all pay attention right now because this is what we're gonna ask you to do with most of your group time this week. You're gonna do a little bit of catching up on life and engaging the heart, and then for sermon discussion and for rallying the mission, we're gonna spend a lot of time working through this uh, missionary training tool that we've developed. It's a pretty simple tool called Their Story, Your Story, The Story, and it's all based on this really simple way of getting to know somebody's story based on past, present, and future. The tool's got a bunch of charts, and I'm gonna walk you through the charts real quick. The first chart is about the past. So for their past, you want to ask questions like, where are they from? What are their past experiences with church or with Christians? Who are their major influences in life? Who do they like to read? Who do they like to listen to? Who is some mentor growing up that has just shaped their outlook on life? All of that gives you context for who is this person that I'm getting to know? Where do they come from? Then you're going to ask for your past. You're going to answer the exact same questions. Where am I from? Who are my influences? What are my past experiences with church and Christians? And as you do that, you're looking for ways to connect your story to their story, and this is one of the ways that friendship grows. Oh, you're different from me in that way, but oh, we have this in common, cool. We're a little bit better friends now. We're getting to know each other. After you do the past, we got their present. Focusing here really on what are their beliefs about God, Jesus, and the Bible? How did they get there? Why are those beliefs? What are their major pains and problems in life? And where are they looking for joy and satisfaction and meaning? And then once again, you're going to answer those same questions from your life, but add a little bit more to it. So with your beliefs, how did Jesus get you there? What were your holdups? What were your resistances? And how did he bring you to where you are now? With your problems, how does Jesus walk through those problems with you? Because that's an opportunity to connect to them. Hey, I heard you talking about that, and I deal with that exact same thing. I'm going to be really honest, man. I don't know how to do that on my own. I need some people around me, and I need to know that God is sovereign and he's taking care of my life because otherwise I couldn't handle that on my own. And now you just had a real conversation, and he doesn't have to have a response. We're just friends. I made a comment. He can do whatever he wants with it. We'll be okay. Uh, Last one, where are you tempted to look for joy outside of Jesus? So like, oh, man, it seems like you find a lot of satisfaction from this. I spent a lot of time doing that in my life, and here's how Jesus kind of showed me that didn't actually work for me long term. You're just having a conversation, all right? And then when it comes to the future, you're asking questions like, what are their hopes and dreams? What do they think is wrong with the world? 
And what do they think heaven is? What would the good life be for them as an individual or for culture at large? And you learn a a lot about a person when you start to ask them about their hopes and dreams for their future, what they think the problem is. Same thing here. You're going to talk about your view of those things, but specifically how has Jesus shaped those things? How has Jesus shaped your hopes and dreams? Where were you putting false hope in something and Jesus said, no, 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 that's not going to work. Here's a better source of hope for your life. How has Jesus convinced you that sin is actually the deepest problem in the world? Which is not to say that there aren't all kinds of other problems in the world like racism and sexism and a lack of education. There's all kinds of problems, but sin is the deepest one underneath all of those other problems. How did Jesus convince you of that? such that you might connect with their story when it comes to your future. Those are the kind of questions you're asking. And then putting it all together at the end, you're getting to know their story, you're telling them about your story, and then what you're going to ask always is this question, how is Jesus good news for their story? Whatever they're dealing with, whatever their problems is, how is Jesus good news for their story? And you're just going to try to connect it back from the right side of the chart over to the left. So it's like, I've seen Jesus be good news in my story. Let me share that with you and how I think that could be good news for your story. So it's not theoretical disembodied Jesus tracked. Here's the answer. It's no, no, no. In my own real life, here's how Jesus has grown me, shaped me, helped me. I think you might need some of that too. Just wanted to hold that out for you. Okay, this is what we're going to spend a good bit of group time doing this week, thinking about our friends who don't know Jesus, thinking about what we know of their story, and where might we need to ask some questions to get to know them better, thinking about our story, and where might we have some opportunities to share the good news of Jesus from the platform of our story, and then finally working as a group together to kind of draw that line back through the chart, saying, all right, how can we make some connections here? We're going to do that as a group and spend some time praying for our friends who don't know Jesus. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond with communion and singing. Pray with me. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for your Philoxenos love for us, that you welcomed us in when we were sinners far from you, when we had nothing to offer you, when we were very different from you. God, I pray that you would just fill us with your heart, with your mind to love our neighbors the way that you love us. God, not to be weird or forceful or think that you need a sales force. When you just want disciples who love you and walk honestly and openly with our neighbors. God, I pray for for our life group time this week. I pray for this tool that that no one would think this tool is, is the formula answer, that this is all supposed to happen in one conversation. God, all these questions get answered over time as we share our lives and our love for you with people over weeks and months and years. God, I pray that less and less the option would exist in our lives, that it could be years into a friendship and someone doesn't even know that we love Jesus, or years into a relationship and and we don't even know what someone's beliefs about you are. I just pray that you would grow us to be faithful witnesses, to love our neighbors well for the good of our city, for the good of those who are far from you, and ultimately for your glory to reflect the kind of God that you are. We pray it all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Y'all stand up where you are.